Funkateers, Bootsy here to bring the Truth and Rhythm family's attention to Funk Not Fight. Yeah, this is a call to action. We spread hope, not hate, uh, to gain satisfaction throughout our communities via the music uplifting unity. Uh, Peppermint Patty, tell us a little more. Thinker is our partner. Thinker music, that is. So please check the link that's scrolling across the bottom, click it, and submit your music. Let's all funk, funk not, fight. not fight. Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Wolfine. If you enjoy this programming, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Join Truth and Rhythm's membership program through Patreon. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership funk, soul, rock, and blues guitarist, singer, and songwriter Leroy Emanuel an original member of The Counts and a longtime feature player with Bohannon. The Counts charted three albums from 1971 to 1975, and he appeared on more than 15 Bohannon albums. Other credits include William Bell, The Clark Sisters, The Crowd Pleasers, ZZ Hill, LMT Connection, and recordings and extensive touring under his own name. And he's still at it. Leroy, thank you for joining me. How are you? Fine. How are you doing? I'm doing yeah doing great yeah glad we could connect and uh uh let everyone know where you're coming to uh today from well um, i'm in i live in niagara falls ontario at this time i've been here for over 40 years and uh, i have a band called lmt connection with uh we have about six seven cds or albums or what have you out and um right now uh Myself, I'm traveling. Matter of fact, I'm going to Italy on um, February the 14th. I have uh, an Italian band that uh, I've had for the past few years, and I've been over there at least once a, 
a year before the uh, situation that knocked us off the block for two two years, but I'm back in form and back on the road again and still going at it. That's fantastic. So glad to hear that. And uh, But you're from, uh, I understand, Atlanta originally, but you grew up in Detroit. Is that right? Right. I was born in Atlanta, and I didn't start playing music till I moved to Michigan. And uh, that was something that, um, really just, I don't know, it was just in my spirit to do in, in my DNA or something. And I picked up a guitar when I was, um, maybe around nine years old, got a little box guitar that, uh, I bought myself. I saved all my nickels, dimes, pennies, what have you, and, uh, whatever I can get. And it took me almost a year and I bought me a, in a pawn shop, I bought a $16 Stella box guitar during that time. And uh, I had a little bit less than what I needed, but uh, the pun shop man had a compassion on me. And he said, man, you're going to play this guitar. I was just a kid. So he took all my chains, gave me the guitar. And um, I sit with it every day after school, went and hid somewhere. <laughs> and I banged on that thing about four or five hours a day until I figured out something. And uh, went from there. When I hit 12, 13 years old, I did my first gigs. And 14, 15 years old, I started working with people like Dead Lovett, um, Carolyn Franklin, which was uh, Aretha Franklin's sister. And from there, uh, I hooked up with a lady which had a company going. She was, um, her birthday just passed. Her name was Johnny Mae Matthews, which to me, she was an icon in Detroit and before Barry Gordy or Motown. And she had a lot of the artists before um, Motown got the artists. And um, she picked me up at 15 years old, 16 years old, actually. And I started doing a little studio work for her. And my mother and her were good friends. And, and my mom, she was something. She told Johnny May, said, well, take him. Do whatever you can do with this kid. So my first professional job was at the Apollo Theater. I was 17 years old. And I met people like Dion Warwick, Chuck Jackson, Ruben the Romantics, and so forth. And I ended up doing a couple of tunes on a show with Dion Warwick. And that's when my life took off from there. When I came back, <laughs> I finished high school, come out at 18 years old, and hooked up with some high school kids named Mose Davis, Demo Cates, Andrew Gibson, um, Keith Mangrum, those guys. And they were known, and they called themselves the Fabulous Counts. So they didn't have a guitar player, so I jammed with them one day. And they begged me to join the group. And, and after a while, they were good players. He, I was out of high school, and they these kids could play. They were younger than me. So anyway, we hooked up, and they decided to turn leadership over to me because I had experience. I've gone to New York and did all these things and worked with Name Max. I come back, and I had a mentality as a professional. 
not only that, I picked up um, Monday night gigs with a guy that was living in Detroit at the time in Michigan. His name was John Lee Hooker. I ended up doing Monday night blues limited gigs on the east side of Detroit with him. Wow. And and um, artists with her. And I started, uh, Mar- me and Marvin Gaye was friends. Um, we would sit over in Anna Studios in the east side of Detroit and rehearse and just jam and play stuff. And, and me and Marvin got to be buddies, kind of, you know. Well, I didn't see him that, that much. But um, I remember Barry Gordy Jr. coming to me one day and asked me would I play for the Marvelettes, and and I just politely refused that because I was in a whole another mentality of mentality of doing things. You know, I wanted to write songs and eventually sing and stuff like that because I was. Um, uh, getting called in to do some session work with the Funk Brothers at Motown during the um, very early boom, 1970 or six, early, late 60s, early 70s. And and uh, me and James Jameson, a guy named Spider Rice, we've done some trio things around Detroit. And, you know, stuff like that. You know, I grew up in Detroit. That was my upbringing, you know, being around guys that they call the Funk Brothers and working, uh, doing studio work with Marvin Gaye or whoever that was uh, at Motown. And I was laying down tracks for, I don't know who they were, guys like the Pips or whoever it was. But during that time, I was uh, a late teenager. And uh, that's how my personal career got to going. And I've always kind of had... Uh, my own brainstorms of doing things. You know, I wasn't, I mean, Stevie Wonder, I could have went with Stevie Wonder. I could have went with anybody, Jackson 5, whoever. But that wasn't my interest at all. Still to this day, it's not. But now I'm 77 years old. <laughs> well, and I'm the, still the, getting... The, huh? yeah, okay, the, go ahead. Yeah, let me ask you then, uh, who were uh, a couple of your big influences? You know, if you were kind of, you know, wanting to do your own thing, you must have had, you know, a couple of players, whether it's, you know, Hendrix or you mentioned John Lee Hooker or some guys that were around back then. Who are some of your influences? My influence was Wes Montgomery. You know, um, I was listening to guys like Wes Montgomery, George Benson, Pat Montino, Kenny Burrell. I would listen to what I would consider some serious guitarists. And that, what caught my interest in my ear as far as music because these guys were and are ones that are still alive are icons on guitar. And I mean, it was a lot of guys like Lenny Bro and stuff. I mean, Hendrix and, and all those rock and roll groups and, and funk groups and stuff. I could play all that stuff when I was 15. You know, it was nothing I was looking up to. I was just looking at, you know, I was looking up to musicians that, could play anything. Gabor Zebo, classical music, Ravi Shankar. I was looking at some really serious people come self-taught. And when I see musicians that are just amazing in their ability and their gifts, that, that caught my eye and my ear. 
even though I played a lot of funk and a lot of blues and stuff like that. And I enjoy playing that to a degree, you know, but I like um, being creative and, um, and by me having an interest in those type of musicians really opened up my um, writing skills and stuff like that. I sing, I'm a singer, songwriter. I play a lot of funk, a lot of blues, a lot of pop, what have you. I can play anything I want, basically, but um, right now I entertain. Um, at the age where I go out and I'm just blessed to see people of all ages come out to my shows. And um, I just uh, I run them through a few things, you know. I don't try to impress them with my guitar playing or my singing, even though I'm always at my best at both. Uh, but uh, mainly it's to uh, connect with people, especially in these times. Whereas, you know, um, we've gone through a lot in the last past couple of years and government stuff and all that kind of stuff. And uh, it's been very painful and very, um, uh, what I can say, sickening for a lot of families and people around the world. And I'm still able to go and travel. I'm going to Italy. And people are waiting for me. And my band is waiting for me. That's over there. And when I get there, it's not going to only be just to get up and sing a few songs and play the guitar. It's going to be to connect and let people know that music is a hopeful thing and people that are promoting this type of thing and promoting me, uh, per se, and other musicians and singers and stuff, promoting and, and um, making connects with other situations like yourself, Scott. You know, you, you're making these connections. I mean, uh, these these type of interviews and things is what keeping me alive as an entertainer, musician, and as a singer, songwriter. Well, Leroy, so, Leroy let huh? me ask you, did, did you uh, uh, play uncredited on some of the Motown recordings? I'm on the Let's Get It On, What's Going On album, the deluxe edition, uh, songs that, they added to the album when Universal Records picked it up. And um, and it's a little booklet in both of those albums. And Marvin mentions me because we were friends. He saw hand pick my musicians like Leroy Emanuel. So, and things, little things like that. And people who are connoisseurs, when they get their whole, when they get those albums, especially in, in vinyl form, they look at all the little details. Uh, when I go to Europe, is I'm just blown away at how many people got my Counts albums because they were on uh, vinyl. And the Bohannon now, I did, actually, I did 21 albums with Bohannon. Wow. And um, I wrote his first two songs, put him, in, put him on the map, and he took it from there. Well, let, let me ask you a little more about the Counts first and then a little more Bohannon um, to, to have it sort of chronological, uh, Leroy. Um, okay. The Counts, could you tell the, the viewers and listeners a little bit about that band? Because, you know, they are sort of a little bit under the radar uh, in terms of, you know, not being as big as, you know, some of the top, you know, 
R&B bands of that time, but certainly, you know, laid down a lot of great grooves and music and were very creative. Um, what was it? What was the vision of the group and what was the ambitions of, of the group? And what are some of the top memories that you have from that? Well, the, the counts is the future. We'll all have always been, will always be. The music that we did, bands haven't connected with that yet. The reason for that is because the Counts started off being wanting to be jazz musicians. Like I said, I love Wes Montgomery. My organ player was in love with Jimmy Smith and and uh, all the all the heavy Hammond B three players. Uh, Demo was into all the heavy sax players like John Coltrane and and all these people. And uh, my drummer, he he could play different. Um, Andrew, he can play different instruments, and and uh, all of us were songwriters. All of us could sing, and they were very young. Only person had experience with me. Our goal, they turned. I think uh, the problem was they turned leadership over to me. And I've always been the type of um, musician that was, um, I was into my own space. And when we started putting our music together, we come together and I would tell the group, I said, since I'm the leader of the group, we're going to rehearse six hours every day. If you want to go play sports, go put on a baseball suit or go put on a, a, a hockey suit, whatever you like, and don't come back. You know, I said, the counts, we have something. I don't know exactly what it is. I'm just a kid talking, but I've also worked in places like uh, the Apollo Theater, um, the Regal Theater, Cobo Arena, a lot of places on a material I play with the James Brown Orchestra and all this. And I'm a kid. I'm playing with John Lee Hooker. And then did a, a day with um, T-Bone Walker, Albert King, all these kind of people. And uh, I had that mentality of an adult and a professional entertainer. And I also, in being around Motown, uh, I learned how to be original, to be myself and that. So... I reflected that onto the band. I said, what do these guys like? And I seen all the musicians that they like, and it all fit in with the musicians that I like. So we were playing jazz. We were playing some heavy jazz, bebop, and stuff like that. And then I told them, if we want to make money, we're going to have to play commercial music, funk and R&B or blues and stuff like that, which they had no problem. But our arrangements were unorthodox during the seventies going. If you listen to what's up front, that counts. Why not start all over again? And we were a comical group too. We were still kids. So we put out stuff like Mr. Penguin and <laughs> crazy stuff and all the same. We could sing like the temptations or the four tops. We were all lead singers and kids. We could sing our harmonies were just right on. We sound like a 10, 12, 15 piece band, and there's only four or five of us. At first, it was six. So, like, and then, and we were like um, into our own world. And plus, we were into, I'm, I was into groups like 
also are groups like Yes, you know, and um, those kind of groups. Um, progressive rock groups, the guys that played some pretty heavy stuff, classically classical rock groups and those kind of things. That I, I heard a lot in that music. So incorporating a lot of that stuff into R&B music during the 60s and the 70s were not, were kind of unheard of <laughs> a little bit. But we developed our own sound. My goal was to make a statement without being compared to any other band in the world. And I think the Counts did that, but we didn't have the money behind us or the record company behind us because they didn't understand what the heck we were doing. <laughs> but we did. And now today, uh, the Counts is surfacing. I mean, we're too old to travel the stuff. I'm the only one that's left in the band that can travel anywhere. The rest of the guys, no. No, that's over with for them. But uh, me, I'm still, tra- I got four bands I'm traveling between. I have an Austrian-Hungarian band. I have a Italian band. And the band that I would have in the United States would be the Counts if we come in the studio and do something. But other than that, no. Traveling anywhere, no, that's not the question. <laughs> Who were some of the um, bands that you were doing shows with during the Counts' heyday? You know, I'm thinking, you know, maybe like Funkadelic or um, Black Murder or groups like that. Were you guys doing shows with with them? Or All of else? them. Yes. Um, Rufus, um, Chocolate Con Rufus. Um, mm, well, we was on this, uh, War, I think. Uh, back in, I was working between the Counts and Bohannon. So during the 70s, I was in concert with all, everybody. You know, the Confunction, the Commodores, Sly and the Family Stone. Um, it goes on and on. Any any funk group that you can think of, I've been at Isley Brothers, just uh, Graham Central Station. Uh, it just goes on. On and on. But at that time, you know, uh, the Counts, you were on Westbound at the same time when they had the Ohio players the Funkadelic. and Funkadelic. And, um, yeah, we toured together. The Funkadelics and the Counts toured together. We toured across the United States together. It that, was must called, have, uh, that must have been a, a mind-blowing, uh, mind-expanding uh, experience. We, sometimes I open up for them and sometimes they open up for us. Because there were some cities and places like that where the Counts were more popular than the Funkadelics and vice versa. So we opened up for each other. Me and Boots is like we're blood brothers right today. And George Clinton and Stevie Wonder. We are and Ray Parker right now. I'm in touch with these guys all the time. Well, actually, when I you know, reviewed your story, Leroy, I, I definitely thought of like Ray Parker. Cause I know, you know, he started so young also in the same environment and he did so many sessions and, but you actually uh, preceded Ray Parker, right? Well, Ray Parker used to come and listen to me all the time. Him and Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder to come and sit in with me. And Stevie Wonder, if you did an interview with him, he'll tell you I'm one of his mentors. 
So Stevie, I'm like five, what, five, six years older than Stevie. I think one of his first records he ever got was a uh, accounts record. So stuff like that, you know, the difference between um, all of us is the fact that they had backing, they had money behind them. They would with Stevie with Motown, Motown, you know, plus his talent is second to none. Ray Parker, he had a family which, you know, was um, shooting him through school and, and all kinds of stuff. He had backing, you know, he had, he had help. And myself, I was basically a single parent kid that ran the streets of Detroit and I grabbed mine off the streets of the back alleys. So I put it together. But I was around all these people all the time. Not that I was so poor or so this or that, but I just didn't have that opportunity to really excel with the talent that I had. I ended up, like now, and uh, 16 years ago, I did um, Marvin Gaye um, final 24-hour documentary movie. I'm starring as Marvin Gaye. So, like, that's been out. It's been on YouTube. It's on YouTube now. Probably on Netflix. Um, it's been on the Oprah Winfrey Show. It's been on Entertainment Tonight. been on all of that stuff. And people ask me, how in the world did you get the starring role in a Marvin Gaye documentary? Well, simple. I grew up with him. You know, me and Marvin, kind of the same height, same size. We can, you know, we kind of have close little features here and there, but what have you. Being around him and recording with him, you know, I just kind of picked up his personality in the week. I, I even sang some of his songs. I can't sing them nowhere as good as he can, but I can sing them, you know, and stuff like that. You know, he was one of my good friends and, and one of the people that I really admired as a person that he can do everything except act. <laughs> Me was no nothing of an actor, but as far as playing sports and all that kind of stuff, he can box, he can play football, basketball, baseball. That guy can do all kinds of stuff. You know? Hey, and, Lord, uh, yeah. Leroy, let me ask yeah. you. Um, first of all, I want to mention, I just want to highlight, you mentioned what's up front that counts and that is just a phenomenal track. And some of the other ones you mentioned too, just so ambitious, so musical, just love that material. But you also mentioned yeah. um, um, the, the Penguin track, Mr. Penguin, which was a hit under a pseudonym name. Um, can you yeah. explain a little bit what happened there? Because that ended up being the biggest hit in terms of charting for the, the members of the counts, right? Well, the thing is, what I was doing back in the day was probably, it was it was me doing what I was doing, and Westbound knew what I was doing too, but, you know, they knew me, and I had already been making money for them, still making money for them today, because what's up front, the counts is still selling. But like, um, the thing is, I'm in Belayden, he and I was pretty cool. So, um, like I said, the counts we we are and were an extremely diversified type of a band. So we were a comic comical group too, you know. 
I mean, we watched cartoons and all that kind of stuff, and we talked about them. And we find funny things in, in cartoons and stuff, and we could play. We could put it to music ourselves. As a group, we could do that just for the heck of it. So what happened was, it was a famous dance out during the time was called the Penguin Dance. So I had an idea. When I called the guys together, I had an idea. I said, look, guys, why don't we in... Uh, I got an idea for this song. So I just started playing some stuff on the song. And then Mose, he started laughing. Then he came up with a the, like an organ part and stuff like that. And Andrew, and he had he can um, kind of got almost his bass voice when he speaks, you know. Um, and I told him, I said, Andrew, I said you are the penguin, man. Be the penguin. And then and Andrew just went right into character. No lie, all that was. Um, Right off the cuff, it wasn't no real lot, a lot of rehearsal stuff going on with that song. I think we went over it about 10, 15 minutes and we started recording. It's a turn the machine on. So Andrew came and once we laid down the track, we were jamming out like crazy. Dum, 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 dum. And I can dance. So I knew how to do the penguin dance. So I did the penguin dance uh, just to get the feel for the music. I said, this is the beat for the penguin dance. So after we laid the track down, uh, and I said, Andrew, I said, man, you got the voice, man. You're Mr. Penguin, just like that. And he, and, and he started laughing. And when he got on the mic, the music started, and he went like, hello, I'm Mr. Penguin. You do your thing, and I'll do mine. I'm the penguin. And he started laughing, ha, 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 ha. And he did that whole song right down, just like that. <laughs> and it was a top 10 hit. Wow. Just goes to show, you <laughs> never know, right? You never know. and You uh, never know. You went by the name of, of Lunar Funk, right? Yeah, had Lunar, Lunar Funk, yeah. Because yeah. I was, uh, we were into space movies. I was into Star Trek and all that kind of stuff. So I just came up, lunar means moon. And I said, this is some crazy stuff. This stuff is out of sight. It's, it's, it's like moon funk or something like that. And I said, moon, moon, that's lunar. So I said, that's good, lunar funk. That's a good name for the band. So we used the name lunar funk. And then, but yeah. on the last record, uh, Byron Miller played on there, right? I had Byron on the show, a uh, great bass player. Right, that was the first album he ever recorded with in the studio. That's it was with the Counts <laughs> and uh, Funk Pump was the album. Great bass player. He was out of Detroit as well. So you guys uh, helped help get him started in, in quite a career that he ended up having, also. Yeah, he just took off like a rocket. As soon as he did that, he, you know, he had a great recording sound as a bassist. And um, and he just went to the right places at the right time, and on his career just moved right along. I noticed too, Leroy, that the uh, Love Sign album, the art was by Overton Lloyd, who also did some Parliament Funkadelic artwork as well. Uh yes, 
he was, uh, I'm trying to think of his name. Um, it. Got him started too. O- Overton Lloyd. Yeah, Overton Lloyd. He was um, out of Detroit. And I hired him to do the Love Sign album. And 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 it came in perfect for him because he was only 18 years old at the time. And I gave him a picture of us and he took pictures of us and he just picked out the faces and and I said, love sign. He had this Adam and Eve idea. So I said, do whatever you want, man. And um, he did that whole sign. Matter of fact, that album is in um, the African Art Musician in California right now. So, you know, things just hard to really happen. And uh, there's a funny thing how the counts are. We're just beginning to, as a band, as what we've done uh, musically, uh, there's a lot of connoisseurs of records and stuff like that. They're really beginning to see. It's got to be gratifying for you after all these years and decades, you know, that it's still alive and it's being revived and it's being recognized in mm-hmm. some, some places it wasn't. And, you know, well, yeah. um, you got to think, wow, man, really was ahead of our time, you know? Yeah. You know, it's just beginning to happen. <laughs> and like it is. So it's like uh, every time, like I said, when I go to Europe and places, like people always come with the council for me to sign it. I was out west. I was out east here in uh, Canada. Uh, What's it? Three years ago, and uh, I was doing a show with L and T. I was on a show in St. John, and um, what happened was somebody came right to the front of the stage. It was about oh, I don't know, a couple thousand people. Somebody walked. This is in Canada. Walked right up to the stage who had an album in their hand. And I couldn't see from the stage what it was. So when I finished playing my show, I came down and the person came backstage and brought out the album. It was What's Up Front That Counts, still in the package, an original. He never opened it. He had the music on whatever, but he had the album in a package, he never opened it. And like, this is like, he bought the album when it was new, back in 1971, 72 or whatever. And he heard that, I heard my name uh, through the group LMT Connection. And he had the album and he came to the show, got up front and flashed the album to me. He brought it backstage and he asked me, he said, it's really you. Just like that. And I just looked at him. I said, yeah, I hope so. <laughs> and he said, would you please sign this album? And he showed it to me. It was an original copy of What's Up Front Accounts. And I looked at it. You know, and I just stared at it for a minute. I just went like, and he said, this is, he said, he said this band is one of my favorite bands of all time. And uh, he was really thrilled, and I got excited that 
um, the whole, whole thing is happening. You know, I went so I called the guys in the group, and I called. I'm still in touch with uh, the guys from the council. I called them and told them what was happening, and they just went like, "Wow, too bad it didn't happen then." <laughs> <laughs> That's you know, great, so though. Like, That's great. Yeah. I um, said, well, we, we, I said, we accomplish our goals. That's the thing. We haven't, we've not forgotten about it. Yeah, thank goodness. You know, you're still around to enjoy some of that. And, and um, yeah. you know. Well, have some appreciation for all the hard work over the years. Hey, Leroy, I, I want to ask you about, um, you know, at, at, during that time, you know, funk really came to be prevalent in the early 70s. Um, and the counts were, you know, in the thick of that. Um, but also the term psychedelic soul was knocked around, you know, okay. with like the stuff Norman Whitfield was doing with the temptations and some of that Detroit, you know, mixture of rock and, and, and R and B. Do you see any difference between yeah. what psychedelic soul is and what funk is? A lot of differences. Um, when it got to be psychedelic, it got to be more mechanical, you know, it got to be, um, when you say psychedelic, that's when the, um, the whole drug scene came in. Pretty big. Yeah. So, like, um, and then it got freaky. It got really, you know, flower towel It really went into a whole other direction. It wasn't, it wasn't a serious even though the funk was still there, but it was a whole other generation that uh, had emerged. Just like um, Disco came in and took over for a while. So I did all this stuff with Bohan, and then after that, what really knocked Disco out the box was hip-hop. Hip-hop came in with the rap. Now, the rap is still around, but it's slowly beginning to take a back to, you know, because as soon as they start uh, rapping on McDonald's commercials, then it's over with. Yeah. You know? It became too, too commercialized. Yeah. Let, let, I just, before I, I move on from the counts, I just want to mention that to me, one of the uh, tracks that really showed the range too was Takali. Um, just, you know, you guys would go in any direction with that group. Yeah. Well, Tukal is, is just, uh, Mose wrote that one. And it was just uh, something that we just wanted to do at the moment. You know? And and like uh, like I said, we was a jazz group that can just play anything. I just pull them, I didn't pull them away from the jazz because um, I didn't want to go away from it. Um, I'm not that crazy about a lot of jazz stuff, you know, I like it. And I like playing it when I can um, play with uh, guys that can really play that kind of thing, you know, but like, um, I wanted to express, you know, all the gifts that we had into the, in, in our music. I didn't want to be labeled as a funk group or as a blues group or as a rock group or a heavy metal band or polka band. I didn't want to be labeled, and they couldn't label us because we went into so many different directions until they didn't know what to do with us. 
they couldn't say, well, you know, they're not like the Commodores, they're not like Cool and the Gang, you know, which are strictly commercial bands, you know, and they listen to most of these songs, they mostly sound the same. You know, just kind of, not that they had to do that. The only band that would, that stepped out, that really made the statement and made it right, and just really took it into the, the, uh, a real serious direction with Earth, Wind, and Fire. Now, Earth, Wind, and Fire came with it. They had jazz, they had big band, they had marching band, they had everything in their music. And the vocals were, and the harmonies were just next to none. You know? So, they they, they took it and and they had enough people on how many was it, 10 or 12, 15 of them? <laughs> yeah. They killed it. The full horn section too, yeah. Yeah, they killed it. You know, it wasn't a band out there can touch those guys as far as a live band. I mean, uh, you know, the group, there were a lot of groups out there like Tower and Power. They did good, but they were only, everything they do sound like the same song. You know, but like, um, you know, they didn't, all they needed was maybe a couple of hits, two or three hits, and they were gone with it. But a band like Earth, Wind & Fire was like, Oh, there was uh they had a major cult following. You know, so they they took it to they had the psychedelic look and and they could play all that stuff in their music, but they added the jazz and they added the Latino, they added the African music uh uh culture to the music. It had a lot of stuff in that music. Same thing which the counts was kinda doing. But like we weren't as big of a band as them. They, you know, it's like four of us or six of us, and they got like fifteen of them. <laughs> so, like, they had a pretty big sound. And we just and, we uh, just lost we just lost Fred White this week too from Earth Wind and Fire. Just want to mention that and well, who, rest in peace, Fred White, the drummer from Earth Wind and Fire, Maurice White's brother. Oh yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah. Had you heard about that? No, I didn't know. Yeah, he just uh, uh, passed away uh, like two days ago. Well, I know Maurice is gone. Yes, so Verdine is, is is the one left now. Wow. That's happening. Like uh, Jimmy Jackson, he passed away. He's one of the counts. You know, but he was um, uh, Jimmy Jackson and uh, Byron Miller and stuff. They were... Um, musicians that we knew from Detroit and stuff that really um, followed us. And so like um, when we wanted to change a couple of things here and there, we never used a bass player. Only bass player we ever used is Byron Miller. We just used him on one album. That was it. All the rest of our albums are Hammond B3 bass. That's interesting. And that, yeah, and that's another that's another thing. We were only one of the only groups in the world that was selling commercial music on on a a B three bass. I mean, Jimmy Smith and and Jack McDuff and all of all those guys was in jazz category, and they had a jazz label for that. But 
we were like in Billboard on R and B charts, you know, and uh, the bass is uh, Hammond B three. And did, like, did, that was did, good. Did, did the did, did the record label um, put pressure on you guys to try to cultivate some hits? Um, not really. They were selling. It was a small company that was. Um, we were selling records. We were selling more records than they was telling us that we were selling. So, it was in a situation where they was making money off the band, but. Um, as long as they keep the band going at the level that they're going at, they'll continue to make money for the company. So, like, uh, and then, too, we, uh, uh, like I said, on the other hand, they didn't know what to do with a band like us. They couldn't sell us as a certain type of a band. They couldn't sell us as a jazz band or a rock band or a Latin band or a blues band because <laughs> we could play all that stuff. And we played all, put all that stuff in our music. And it kind of like, um, it confused the record company instead of just selling us as an artist. You know, they were trying to sell us as a band, just like all the rest of the commercial bands that was being sold as a band. Well, you know? it also comes to mind a group like Mandrill, you know, who was doing some different stuff back then. They um, would. Great Mandrill was a great band too. Mm -hmm. And they had something different. Exactly. Um, mm -hmm. Hey, uh, um, moving on to Bohannon, uh, Leroy, how, how did you uh, get involved with him in the first place? Well, Bohannon is from Noonan, Georgia. I'm from Georgia. We both from Georgia. And, um, I was working around Detroit, uh, doing all kinds of, I work with everybody. Bohannon, uh, he went to school in, um, Atlanta and he came out of, um, I forget which college he came out of. He came to Detroit as a musician looking for, um, something to do. He came up and he was a supply teacher in Detroit. I don't know what he was teaching, but he was a supply teacher and uh, he was staying in various places. He didn't have a house or anything. He was just there looking to get something going on. It wasn't happening in a little small rural area where he was living in Georgia. That was going to never happen for him. So he made his way to Detroit and uh, he got a job as supply teachers. And from there, he, um, um, put himself out as a drummer that could for hire. So one day he got hired by a guy named Bill Wiggins to play saxophone and he hired me and he just put together a band for that night. This guy had got a gig. So Bohannon was the drummer. So now I was the guitar player and uh, a couple other guys. Well, anyway, uh, that's how I met Bohannon. And he was real quiet. He wouldn't talk to nobody. And uh, he always would wear these cowboy boots and this, and he had this cowboy hat and type of thing. It was nice, you know. And and I finally, I was talking to him. I said, man, I said, you got some cool cowboy boots and cowboy hat or whatever. 
And um, he wouldn't say nothing. He'd just say, yeah. Think he wouldn't say nothing, hardly. And then um, and I asked him, I said, where are you from? Where, where, where are you from? Then he went, like, Noonan, Georgia. So when he said that, I said, oh, yeah, that's only about an hour drive from Atlanta. And he kind of looked at me then. And I'm in Detroit. He went and he said, how do you know? That's only an hour away from from Atlanta. I said, because I was born in Atlanta. I'm from Georgia. And when I said that, everything changed. He started talking to me. And like, we started talking. Then he asked me, he said, what's going on in Detroit? Do you know? And I knew Detroit. I said, well, I said, everything is going on. I said, music is everywhere. I said, you got artists, you got singers, musicians. You, I said, Detroit is the number one state, uh, number one city in America, and probably the world. And I said, especially for music, because we had Motown, right? So he went like, Motown? I said, I said, oh, that's a record company, Motown. He said, what they got going on? I said, they do session work, they do... Uh, all kinds of, um, um, they got songwriters and choreographers. They got everything over there. But only people that can record in Motown are Motown people. It's not open to the public. No. And he said, you think I can get into something? I said, well, just go over and talk to somebody and let them know what you do and, um, and what you can do, where you're from, and all this kind of stuff. I say, it won't hurt. The next thing I know, he had ended up getting a job at Motown, not recording, but um, calling musician. Bohannon had a real, he had a mind for remembering numbers. So he was putting together musicians for the different singers that were there so they can have their own band and all this kind of stuff. He got involved in Motown. So he ended up being the big band, the long story short, he ended up being the big band leader at Motown. Orchestra leader. He come out and he played with a 21-piece orchestra. He played the drums. And then after that, whoever, the four tops, whoever come on, he come off of the drums and the four tops drummer, whoever, drum, Temptation drummer would play the drums with the orchestra. And he never played with none of those people. So but he put the orchestras together. So he became pretty important with Motown, with musicians and stuff. He was he was pretty pretty sharp, you know, with doing that. So anyway, when that happened, they would never record him. They didn't want to record him. So he got really pissed off at Motown because they wouldn't record him. And he kept telling them, they said, we don't record instrumental bands and stuff like that. Go to another company or something, you know. Anyway, he um, hooked up with me. He called me, and we got together. And he and uh, I had the counts. And he was going like, "What company are you with us? I'm with this little company and stuff like that, you know." I got the counts and going on, and he said, "I want to record," and um. I'm, he said, I'm going to go to Chicago or New York or somewhere, but I want to record. And um, and he said, could you help me out? And I went like, sure. 
So I wrote Stop and Go. I said, I got a tune for you. What you got? I said, I said, it's this tune. I played it for him. Then he called it. He gave it a name, Stop and Go. You know? And went to a record company, Brunswick Records. And they heard it. And they liked the groove because it was like, that's when disco was really started. Is when he did, when I wrote Stop and Go for him, and then all the songs had this beat, had this disco beat. So what happened was, Brunswick picked up the record. The record took off in Europe because that's where the, uh, the word discotheque come from. Europe come from England. They call it discotheque. And they shorten it to disco. So Bohannon got popular and in those European countries with what they call discotheque music. And it came back to the United States. And it took off because, you know, England and all these countries is on top of it. And bang, it exploded. And in the U.S., everything became disco, everything. So uh, we was right in the midst of it. And I ended up doing 21 albums with him. And I was still working with the Counts. But music had been disco, and uh, and I got Mose and a couple of guys, uh, Jimmy Jackson, and I helped Bohannon put his band together. Did uh, and, right, uh, did 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 he have any formal music training, or did he just pick it all up on his own? Well, he could read music. He went to he went to um, college, and he he um, took music class. He knew how to read music and stuff like that. So he started music in school. Okay. That first record, Stop and Go, um, you know, also had uh, Wawa Watson on it and, and Ray Parker. Yep. And I mean, the three yep. of you guys on guitar is just incredible. Yep. And um, that was his first record. And I gave, um, I gave um, some credit rights to Bohan and, and Wawa. Wawa was uh, doing a, he put the Wawa sound on there and it really spruced up the record real nice, you know? So me, I didn't care. I gave him um, some rights to the song and stuff. So you'd see his name on there and you see Bohanna's name. Definitely want to put Bohanna's name on that because he was making a record deal and he wanted to come across to the record company that he was a songwriter, you know? So that was only business. And that was a lot of that was like some of it was some of it was my doing, you know, because I had already had the counseling, already gone through the ropes, um, how to get in and out of things, you know, and what would look good, you know. Instead of him going, he said, "Well, I'm a drummer." He said, "Well, what else do you do besides beat on the drums?" He said, "Well, I'm a songwriter and I'm a singer and I'm a this and you know I can I'm the package." So a record company, if they're going to invest in anybody, it's okay. He's the package. Then he went out and hired different singers like um, Carolyn Crawford. When we did Let's Start to Dance, she, he hired, brought her in, Detroit Girl, which you have an amazing voice. She's still singing today as well. And uh, she came in and did Let's Start to Dance, did the vocal on that, and, and uh, that song made top ten. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. 
just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.